0: Welcome to Listening to the Giants, Episode 8. Welcome to Listening to the Giants. I'm your host, Dale Lewis. Thank you for listening. In today's episode, we are continuing through the book, Advice for Seekers, by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. This book is full of gospel riches and was primarily directed to non-Christians. In it, Spurgeon lays out a clear biblical understanding of the gospel, and he describes some of the errors that hinder unbelievers from coming to saving faith in Christ. However, I think that this book is also very valuable for professing Christians. In Matthew seven twenty-two through 23 Jesus said, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. And the Greek text is emphatic here. I never, know, not once ever knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness the Apostle Paul also admonished the Corinthians to test or examine themselves to see if they were in the faith, Second Corinthians 13.5. The biblical teaching and advice for seekers will help professing Christians to make certain about Christ's calling and choosing of them, 2 Peter 1.10. Well, with all of this in mind, I hope that you are eager to hear again from Spurgeon. So without any delay, let's begin listening to the Giants. Advice for Seekers by Charles Haddon Spurgeon Chapter 4 Still No Light and Why It shall be my happy task to endeavor to assist into the light those who want to flee from the darkness. We will do so by trying to answer the query, How is it that I, wanting a light, have not found it yet? Why am I left to grope like a blind man for the wall and stumble at noon as if it were the night? Why has the Lord not revealed himself to me? You may have been seeking the light in the wrong place. Many, like Mary, seek the living among the dead. It is possible that you may have been the victim of the false doctrine that peace with God can be found in the use of ceremonies. It is possible, too, that you have been looking for salvation in the mere belief of a certain creed. You have thought that if you could discover pure orthodoxy and could then consign your soul into its mold, you would be a saved man, and you have consequently believed, unreservedly, as far as you have been able to do so, the set of truths which have been handed down to you by the tradition of your ancestors. It may be that your creed is Calvinistic. It is possible that it is Arminian. It may be Protestant. It may be Romish. It may be truth. It may be a lie. But believe me, solid peace with God is not to be found through the mere reception of any creed, however true or scriptural. Mere head notion is not the road to heaven. Ye must be born again means a good deal more than you must believe certain dogmas. It is of the utmost possible importance, I grant you, that you should search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. But recollect how our Lord upbraided the Pharisees. He told them that they searched the Scriptures, but he added, Ye will not come to me that ye might have life. John 5, 40 You stop short at the Scriptures, and therefore short... eternal life. The study of these, good as it is, cannot save you. You must press beyond this. You must come to the living personal Christ, once crucified, but now living to plead at the right hand of God, or else your acceptance of the soundest creed cannot affect the salvation of your soul. You may be misled in some other manner. Some other mistaken way of seeking peace may have beguiled you, and if so, I earnestly pray that you may see the mistake. You must understand that there is only one door to salvation, and that is Christ. There is one way, and that is Christ. One truth, and that is Christ. One life, and that is Christ. Salvation lies in Jesus only. It does not lie in you, in your doings or your feelings, or in your knowings or your resolutions. In him all life and light for the sons of men are stored up by the mercy of God the Father. This may be one reason why you have not found the light, because you have sought it in the wrong place. It is possible that you may have sought it in the wrong spirit. When we ask for pardon reconciliation and salvation, we must remember to whom we speak and who we are who ask the favor. Some appear to deal with God as if he were bound to give them salvation, as if salvation indeed were the inevitable result of a round of performances or the desired reward of a certain amount of virtue. They refuse to see that salvation is a pure gift of God, not of works. Not the result of merit, but a free favor only. Not of man, neither by man, but of the Lord alone. Though the Lord has placed it on record in his word, in the plainest language, that it is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy, Romans 9.16, Yet most men in their hearts imagine that everlasting life is tied to duties and earned by service. You must abandon such vainglorious notions. You must come before God as a humble petitioner, pleading the promises of mercy, abhorring all idea of merit, confessing that if the Lord condemns you, he has a right to do it. And if he saves you, It will be an act of pure, gratuitous mercy, a deed of sovereign grace. Oh, too many of you seekers, hold your heads too high to enter into the lowly gate of light you must stoop. On the bended knee is the penitent's true place. God be merciful to me, a sinner, is the penitent's true prayer. If God should condemn you, You could never complain of injustice, for you have deserved it a thousand times. And if those prayers of yours were never answered, if no mercy ever came, you could not accuse the Lord, for you have no right to be heard. He could righteously withhold an answer of peace, if he so willed. Confess that you are an undeserving, ill-deserving, hell-deserving sinner, and begin to pray as you have never prayed before. Cry out of the depths of self-abasement if you want to be heard. Come as a beggar, not as a creditor. Come to crave, not to demand. Use only this argument, Lord, hear me, for you are gracious, and Jesus died. I cry to you as a condemned criminal who seeks pardon. Deliver me from going down into the pit, that I may praise your name. This harboring of a proud spirit, I fear, has been a great source of mischief with many. And if it has been so with you, amend it, and go now with humble and contrite hearts, in lowliness and brokenness of spirit, to your Father whom you have offended, for he will surely accept you as his children." Others have not obtained peace, I fear, because they do not yet have a clear idea of the true way of finding it. Although it has been preached to us so often, it is still little understood. The way of peace with God is seen through a haze by most men, so that no matter how plainly you put it, they will, if it is possible, misunderstand you. Your salvation does not depend on what you do, but upon what Christ did when he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin. All your salvation takes root in the death throes of Calvary. The great substitute bore your sin and suffered its penalty. Your sin shall never destroy you if upon that bloody tree the Lord's chosen high priest made a full expiation for your sins. They shall not be laid against you any more forever. What you have to do is simply to accept what Jesus has finished. I know your idea is that you are to bring something to him, but that glorious idea has ruined many and will ruin more. When you are brought empty-handed made willing to accept a free and full salvation from the hand of the crucified, then, and only then, will you be saved. There is life for a look at the crucified one. But men will not look to the cross. No, they conspire to raise another cross, or they aspire to adorn that cross with jewels or they labor to wreathe it with sweet flowers, but they will not give a simple look to the Savior and rely alone on Him. Yet no soul can ever obtain peace with God by any other means, while this means is so effectual that it has never failed and never shall. The waters of Abana and Farpar are preferred by proud human nature. But the waters of Jordan alone can take away the leprosy. See Second Kings 5, 1-14. Our repentings, our doings, our resolutions, these are simply broken cisterns. But the only life draft is to be found in the fountain of living water opened up by our Emmanuel's death. Do you understand that a simple trust— a sincere dependence, a hearty reliance upon Christ is the way of salvation? If you do know this, may the God who taught you to understand the way give you grace to run in it. And then your light has come, arise and shine. Your peace has come, for Christ has bought it with his blood. For as many as trust in him, he has been punished. Their sins are gone." lost as in a shoreless flood, drowned in the Redeemer's blood, pardoned soul, how blessed thou art, justified from all things now. If none of these arguments have touched your case, let me further suggest that perhaps you have not found light because you have sought it in a half-hearted manner. None enter heaven who are only half-inclined to go there. Cold prayers ask God to refuse them. When a man manifestly does not value the mercy which he asks and would be perfectly content not to receive it, it is small wonder if he is denied. Many a sinner lies year after year freezing outside the door of God's mercy because he has never thoroughly bestirred himself to take the kingdom of heaven by violence. If you are willing to be unsaved, you shall be left to perish. But if you are inwardly set and resolved that you will give God no rest until you win a pardon from him, he will give you your heart's desire. The man who must be saved shall be. The man whose heart is set on finding the way to Zion's hill shall find that way. I believe that usually a sense of our pardon comes to us when, Samson like, we grab the posts of mercy's door with desperate vehemence, as though we would pluck them up, post and bar and all, rather than remain shut out any longer from peace and safety. Strong crying and tears, groanings of spirit, vehement longings and ceaseless pleadings. These are the weapons which, through the blood of Jesus, win us the victory in our warfare of seeking the Lord. Perhaps, then, you have not bestirred yourself as you should have done. May the Lord help you to be a mighty wrestler, and then a prevailing prince. Chapter 5, We Wait for Light, Isaiah 59, 9 I address those who sincerely want to obtain the true and heavenly light, who have waited hoping to receive it, but instead of obtaining it, are in a worse, at least in a sadder state than they were. They are almost driven into the dark foreboding that for them no light will ever come, that they shall be prisoners chained forever in the valley of the shadow of death. These people are, in some degree, aware of their natural darkness. They are looking for light. They are not content with their obscurity. They are waiting for brightness. There are a few who are not content to be what their first birth has made them. They discover in their nature much evil and would be glad to get rid of it. They find in their understanding much ignorance, and they long to be illuminated. They do not understand Scripture when they read it, and though they hear gospel terms, they still fail to grasp gospel thought. They pant to escape from this ignorance. They desire to know the truth which saves the soul, and their desire is not only to know it in theory, but to know it by its practical power upon their inner selves. They really and anxiously want to be delivered from, from the state of nature, which they feel to be a dangerous one, and to be brought into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Oh, these are the best kind of hearers, these in whom right desires have begun to be awakened. Men who are dissatisfied with the darkness are evidently not altogether dead, for the dead shall slumber in the catacombs, heedless as to whether it is noon or night. Such men evidently have not fallen completely asleep, for they who slumber sleep better because of the darkness. They ask for no sunbeams to molest their dreams. Such people are evidently not completely blind, because it makes no difference to the blind whether the sun floods the landscape with glory or night conceals it with her black veil. Those to whom our thoughts are directly turned are somewhat awakened, aroused, and bestirred. And this is no small blessing, for, alas, most people are a stolid mass regarding spiritual things. And the preacher might almost as hopefully strive to create a soul within the ribs of death or exhort warm tears of piety from Sicilian marble as evoke spiritual emotions from the people of this generation. So these people are hopeful in their condition who, just as the trees twist their branches towards the sunlight, they long after Jesus, the light and life of men. Moreover, these persons have a high idea of what the light is. They call it brightness. They wait for it and are grieved because it does not come. If you greatly value spiritual life, you have not made a mistake. If you count it a priceless thing to obtain an interest in Christ, the forgiveness of your sins and peace with God, you judge according to solemnness. You shall never exaggerate in your valuation of the one thing necessary. It is true that those who trust in God are a happy people. It is true that to be brought into sonship and adopted into the family of the great God is a boon for which kings might well exchange their diadems. You cannot think too highly of the blessings of grace. I would rather incite in you a sacred covetousness after them than in the remotest degree lower your estimate of their preciousness. Salvation is such a blessing that heaven hangs upon it If you win grace, you have the germ of heaven within you, the security, the pledge, and the earnest of everlasting bliss. So far, again, there is much that is hopeful in you. It is good that you loathe the darkness and prize the light. The people I want to speak with have some hope that they may yet obtain this light. In fact, they are waiting for it hopefully waiting, and are somewhat disappointed that after waiting for the light, instead obscurity has come. They are evidently astonished at the failure of their hopes. They are amazed to find themselves walking in darkness when they had fondly hoped that the candle of the Lord would shine around them. I would encourage in you that spark of hope. For despair is one of the most terrible hindrances to the reception of the gospel. So long as awakened sinners cherish a hope of mercy, we have hope for them. We hope, O seeker, that before long you will be able to sing of pardon bought with blood, and when this scene is closed, shall enter through the gates into the pearly city among the blessed who forever see the face of the well-beloved. Though it may seem too good to be true, yet even you, in your calmer moments, think that one day you will rejoice that Christ is yours and take your seat among his people, though the poorest of them all, in your own estimation. Then you imagine in your heart how fervently you will love your Redeemer, how rapturously you will kiss the very dust of his feet, how gratefully you will bless him, who has lifted the poor from the dunghill and set him among princes. May you no longer look through a window wistfully at the banquet, but come in to sit at the table and feed upon Christ, rejoicing with his chosen. The people I am describing are those who have learned to plead their case with God. We wait for light, but only see obscurity, for brightness, but we walk in darkness. It is a declaration of inward feelings, a laying bare of the heart's agonies to the Most High. Although you have not yet found the peace you seek, it is good that you have begun to pray. Perhaps you think it is poor praying. Indeed, you hardly care to call it prayer at all, but God does not judge as you do. A groan is heard in heaven. A deep Fetched, sigh, and a falling tear are prevalent weapons at the throne of God. Yes, your soul cries to God and you cannot help it. When you are about your daily work, you find yourself sighing, Oh, that my load of guilt were gone! Oh, that I could call the Lord my Father with an unfaltering tongue! Night after night and day after day this desire rises from you like morning mist, from the valleys. You would tear off your right arm and pluck out your right eye if you might gain the unspeakable benefit of salvation in Jesus Christ. You are sincerely anxious for reconciliation with God, and your anxiety reveals itself in prayer and supplication. I hope these prayers will continue. I trust you will never cease your crying. May the Holy Spirit constrain you to continue to sigh and groan. Like the importunate woman, Luke 18, 1-8, may you press your case until the gracious answer is granted through the merits of Jesus. So far, things are hopeful for you. But when I say hopeful, I wish I could say much more, for mere hopefulness is not enough. It is not enough to desire. It is not enough to seek. It is not enough to pray. You must actually obtain. You must actually lay hold on eternal life. You will never enjoy comfort and peace till you have passed out of the merely hopeful stage into a better and brighter one. By making sure of your interest in the Lord Jesus by a living, appropriating faith. In the exalted Savior, all the gifts and graces which you need are stored up in readiness to supply your wants. Oh, may you come to his fullness and out of it receive grace for grace. The person I wish to comfort may be described by one other touch of the pen. He is one who is quite willing to lay bare his heart before God, to confess his desires, whether right or wrong, and to expose his condition, whether unhealthy or sound. While we try to cloak anything from God, we are both wicked and foolish. It shows a rebellious spirit when we have a desire to hide away from our Maker. But when a man uncovers his wound, invites inspection of its sore, bids the surgeon cut away the leprous film which covered its corruption and says to him, Here, probe into its depths. See what evil there is in it. Do not spare me, but make a sure cure of the wound. Then he is in a fair way to be recovered. When a man is willing to make God his confessor, and freely and without hypocrisy Pours out his heart like water before the Lord, there is hope for him. You have told the Lord your position. You have spread your petitions before him. I trust you will continue to do so until you find relief. But I have yet a higher hope namely, that you may soon obtain peace with God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Chapter 6. The Invitation. Do you desire eternal life? Is there within your soul a hungering and a thirsting after such things that may satisfy your spirit and make you live forever? Then come, for now all things are ready, Luke 14:17. All, not some, but all. There is nothing that you need between here and heaven, which is not provided in Jesus Christ, in his person, and in his work. All things are ready. Life for your death. Forgiveness for your sin. Cleansing for your filth. Clothing for your nakedness. Joy for your sorrow. Strength for your weakness. Indeed, more than anything you could ever want is stored up in the boundless nature and work of Christ. You must not say, I cannot come because I do not have this or do not have that. Are you to prepare the feast? Are you to provide anything? Are you bringing even salt or water? You do not know your true condition, or you would not dream of such a thing. The great householder himself has provided the whole of the feast. You have nothing to do with the provision, but to enjoy it. If you lack anything... Come and take what you lack. The greater your need, the greater is the reason why you should come where all things that your need can possibly want will be at once supplied. If you are so needy that you have nothing good at all about you, all things are ready. When God has provided all things, what more could you possibly provide? It would be a disgraceful insult If you thought of adding to his all things, it would be a presumptuous competing with the provisions of the great King, and this he will not endure. All that you are lacking between the gates of hell, where you now lie, and the gates of heaven, to which grace will bring you if you believe, all is provided and prepared in Jesus Christ, the Savior. And all things are ready dwell on that word. The oxen and the fatlings were killed, and what is more, they were prepared to be eaten. They were ready to be feasted on. They smoked on the board. It is something when the king gives orders for the slaughter of so many bullocks for the feast. But the feast is not ready then. And when the victims fall beneath the axe, and they are stripped and hung up ready for the fire, something has been done, but they still are not ready. It is only when the joints are served hot and steaming upon the table and everything else that is wanted is brought out and laid in proper order for the banquet that all things are ready. And this is the case now. At this very moment, you will find the feast is in the best possible condition. It was never better and never can be better than it is now. All things are ready, in the exact condition that you need them to be, in exactly the right condition that is best for your soul's comfort and enjoyment. All things are ready. Nothing needs to be further mellowed or sweetened. Everything is as perfect as eternal love can make it. But notice the word now. All things are now ready. Just now, at this moment. At feasts, you know, the good housewife is often troubled if the guests come late. She would be sorry if they came a half hour too soon, but a half hour too late spoils everything. And she is in a great state of fret and worry when all things are ready, yet her friends still delay. Leave food in the oven a while, and it does not seem to be now ready, but more than ready, and even spoiled. So the great householder lays stress upon this. All things are now ready. Therefore, come at once. He does not say that if you delay for another seven years, all things will then be ready. He does not say that if you delay for another seven years, all things will then be ready. God grant that long before that space of time, you may have got beyond the need to be persuaded to become a taster of the feast. But he says that everything is ready now, just now. Just now that your heart is so heavy and your mind is so careless that your spirit is so wandering, all things are ready now. If the reason why a sinner is to come is because all things are ready, then it is idle for him to say, but I am not ready. It is clear that all the readiness required on man's part is a willingness to come and receive the blessing which God has provided. There is nothing else necessary. If men are willing to come, they may come, they will come. Where the Lord has been pleased to touch the will so that man has a desire toward Christ, where the heart really hungers and thirsts after righteousness, that is all the readiness which is wanted. All the fitness He requires is that first, you feel your need of Him, and that He gives you. And that secondly, in feeling your need of Him, you are willing to come to Him. Willingness to come is everything. A readiness to believe in Jesus, a willingness to cast the soul on Him, a preparedness to accept Him just as He is, because you feel that He is just the Savior that you need, that is all. There was no other readiness. There could have been none. In the case of those who were poor and blind and lame and maimed, yet came to the feast. The text does not say, you are ready, therefore come. That is a legal way of putting the gospel. But it says, all things are ready. The gospel is ready, therefore you are to come. As for your readiness— All the readiness that is possibly wanted is a readiness which the Spirit gives us, namely, willingness to come to Jesus. Now notice that the unreadiness of those who were asked arose out of their possessions and out of their abilities. One would not come because he had bought a piece of land. What a great heap Satan casts up between the soul and the Savior! With worldly possessions and good deeds, he builds an earthwork of huge dimensions between the sinner and his Lord. Some gentlemen have too many acres ever to come to Christ. They think too much of the world to think much of him. Many have too many fields of good works in which there are growing crops on which they pride themselves, and these cause them to feel that they are persons of great importance. Many a man cannot come to Christ for all things because he has so much already. Others could not come because they had so much to do and could do it well. One had bought five yoke of oxen and he was going to prove them. He was a strong man, well able to plow. The reason why he did not come was because he had so much ability. Thousands are kept away from grace by what they have and by what they can do. Emptiness is more preparatory to a feast than fullness. How often does it happen that poverty and inability help to lead the soul to Christ? When a man thinks he is rich, he will not come to the Savior. When a man dreams that he is able at any time to repent and believe and to do everything for himself that is wanted, he is not likely to come and by a simple faith repose in Christ. It is not what you have not, but what you have that keeps many of you from Christ. Sinful self is a devil, but righteous self is seven devils. The man who feels himself guilty may for a while be kept away by his guilt. The man who feels himself guilty may for a while be kept away by his guilt. But the man who is self-righteous will never come. Until the Lord has taken his pride away from him, he will still refuse the feast of free grace. The possession of abilities and honors and riches keeps men from coming to the Redeemer. But on the other hand, personal condition does not constitute an unfitness for coming to Christ. For the sad condition of those who became guests did not debar them from the supper. Some were poor, and doubtless wretched and ragged. They did not have a penny to bless themselves with, as we say. Their garments were tattered, perhaps worse. They were filthy. They were not fit to be near respectable people. They would certainly be no credit to my Lord's table. But those who went to bring them in did not search their pockets, nor look at their coats, but they fetched them in. They were poor, but the messengers were told to bring in the poor, and therefore they brought them. Their poverty did not prevent their being ready. And, O poor soul, if you are poor literally or poor spiritually, neither sort of poverty constitutes an unfitness for divine mercy. If you are brought to your last penny, or even if that penny is spent and you have pawned everything you have, yet are still up to your eyes in debt and think that there is nothing left for you but to be laid by the heels in prison forever, nevertheless you may come, poverty and all. Another class of them were maimed, and so were not very attractive in appearance. An arm had been lopped off or an eye had been gouged out. One had lost a nose and another a leg. They were in all stages and shapes of dismemberment. Sometimes we turn our heads away and feel that we would rather give anything than to look upon beggars who show their wounds and describe how they were maimed. But it did not matter how badly they were disfigured. They were brought in and not one of them was repulsed because of the ugly cuts he had received. So, poor soul, however Satan may have torn and lopped you, and whatever condition he may have brought you to, so that you feel ashamed to live, nevertheless, this does not make you unfit for coming. You may come to his table of grace, just as you are. Moral disfigurements are soon rectified when Jesus takes the character in hand. Come to him, however sadly you are injured by sin. There were others who were lame. They had lost a leg, or it was of no use to them, and they could not come except with the help of a crutch. But nevertheless, that was no reason why they were not welcome. Ah, if you find it difficult to believe that is no reason why you should not come and receive the grand absolution which Jesus Christ is ready to bestow upon you. Lame with doubting and distrusting, nevertheless come to the supper and say, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Others were blind, and when they were told to come, they could not see the way. But in that case, the messenger was not told to tell them to come. He was commanded to bring them. And a blind man can come if he is brought. All that was wanted was willingness to be led by the hand in the right direction. Now, you who cannot fully understand the gospel as you wish to do, who are puzzled and muddled, put your hand in the hand of Jesus and be willing to believe what you cannot comprehend and to grasp in confidence that which you are not yet able to measure with your understanding. The blind, however ignorant or uninstructed they are, shall not be kept away because of that. Then there were men in the highways. I suppose they were beggars and men in the hedges. I suppose they were hiding and were probably thieves but nevertheless they were told to come. And though they were highwaymen and hedge birds, even that did not prevent their coming and finding welcome. Though outcasts, spiritual gypsies, people that nobody cared for, whatever they might be, that was not the question. They were to come because all things were ready. Come in rags, come in filth, come maimed, Come covered with sores, come in all sorts of filthiness and abomination, yet because all things are ready, they were to be brought or to be compelled to come in. I think it was the very thing which in any one of these people looked like unfitness, which was a help to them. It is a great truth that what we regard as unfitness is often our truest fitness. I want you to notice these poor, blind, and lame people. Some of those who were invited would not come because they had bought some land or five yoke of oxen. But when the messenger went up to the poor man in rags and said, Come to the supper, it is quite clear he would not say he had bought a field or oxen, for he could not do it, he did not have a penny to do the thing with. So he was delivered from that temptation. And when a man is invited to come to Christ and he says, I do not want him, I have a righteousness of my own, he will stay away. But when the Lord Jesus came along to me, I was never tempted in that way because I had no righteousness of my own and could not have made one if I had tried. I know some who could not patch up a garment of righteousness if they were to put all their rags together, and this is a great help their receiving the Lord Jesus. What a blessedness it is to have such a sense of soul poverty that you will never stay away from Christ because of what you possess. Some could not come because they had married a wife. Now, I think it very likely that those people who were maimed and cut about were so injured that they had no wife and perhaps could not get anybody to have them well then, they did not have that temptation to stay away. They were too maimed to attract the eye of anyone who was looking for beauty, and therefore they were not tempted that way. But they found at the ever-blessed supper of the Lamb an everlasting wedlock which was infinitely better. Thus do souls lose earthly joys and comforts, and by the loss they gain supremely. They are therefore made willing to close in with Christ and find a higher comfort and a higher joy. That maiming which looked like unfitness turned out to be fitness. One excuse made was, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I go to prove them. The lame could not do that. When the messenger touched the lame man on the shoulder and said, Come, He could not say, I am going out tonight to plow with my new teams. He had never been over the field since he had lost his leg, so he could not make such an excuse. The blind man could not say, I have bought a piece of land and I must go to see it. He was free from all the lusts of the eye and was so all the more ready to be led to the supper. When a soul feels its own sinfulness and wretchedness and lost estate, it thinks itself unfit to come to Christ. But this is an assistance to it, since it prevents its looking to anything else but Christ, kills its excuses, and makes it free to accept salvation by grace. But how about the men that were in the highway? Well, it seems to me that they were already on the road, and at least out of their houses, if they had any. If they were out there begging, they were more ready to accept an invitation to a meal of victuals, for it was that they were singing for. A man who is out of the house of his own self-righteousness, though he be a great sinner, is in a more favorable position and more likely to come to Christ than he who prides himself on his supposed righteousness. That's our podcast for today. The next episode of Advice for Seekers will be posted in two weeks. If you subscribe to Listening to the Giants on your favorite podcast platform, you'll be notified when the next episode is posted. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any podcast app. I'd like to invite you to visit the Listening to the Giants website at listeningtothegiants.com. There, you're going to be able to listen to past episodes, browse some helpful links, and even leave us a message. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope that you will join us next time as we listen to the John.